Uh, before we dive into our Notre Dame uh, father, he's actually a priest. Um, let me let me let me tell you his story really quickly. So, Father Albert Cutie, also known as Padre Padre Alberto, has entered millions of homes throughout the world with his television and radio talk shows, as well as newspaper columns. In October of 98, he became the first clergy person, clergy person of any religious tradition to host a daily talk show as part of a network on commercial international television. He produced hundreds of talk shows with the Telemundo network, and he became one of the most recognized names in Spanish language television. His compassionate and earnest style earned him the title Father Oprah, and many Latinos throughout the United States often refer to him as Padre Oprah, a title conferred by the New York Times and Newsweek. He left the Roman Catholic Church in May 2009 after publication of photographs showing him with a woman at the beach and his subsequent admission that he was in love. He has said that mandatory celibacy was only one of the theological differences that led him to leave the Roman Catholic Church for the Episcopalian Church. And Father Albert has since married his wife, his now wife, and joined the Episcopal Church and he currently serves as the rector of St. Benedict's an Episcopal Parish in Plantation Park. I can't wait to talk to him because this is a subject that I've often, uh, you know, spoke to friends about. I have my own opinions about, and I just am looking forward to getting into this conversation. Before we bring in the father, though, I just want to mention one thing. Last week, uh, Nicole Duhon and myself launched a course. We launched a 12-week course called the Noble Reset, and we call it that because, um, you know. Boaz was a man of noble character in the Bible. And uh, in Proverbs 31, he talks about um, that, that, that woman that they described in Proverbs 31 being a woman of noble character. And, you know, I, I've spoken pretty openly about, you know, weight can be a very beneficial time if you know how to use it properly. And I, what I see more often than not is people not using it at all. They sit around and they just kind of suffer through it. They're not really doing anything very intentionally um, to become the best version of themselves or really just move the needle forward in the areas of life that are most important to them. So Nicole and I uh, launched this course last week and we are very excited about it. It's basically a 12, 12 week reset for people to really um, stop for 90 days, stop dating, uh, and then to work on themselves and then to restart uh, enter the dating world the proper way uh, after the 90 days. There's a 40-day fast as part of it. There's uh, weekly group coaching calls. There's live one-on-one -on -one calls. It's very intense, but I'm very excited about it. Uh, there's still time to get in. Our doors close on, on Thursday at midnight or Friday, Friday at midnight, depending on how you look at it, but there's still time to get in. If it's something that you want to know more about, drop a comment below. Just say me, and I'll get back to you with some more information. Okay. With no further ado, let's get into the podcast. All right, welcome to episode 39 of Kowalski Analysis, Father Alberto Cutie. Did I pronounce that right? They always, it's Cutier, but don't worry, in English we have no accents, so Cutie's just fine. <laughs> or Cutier. Yeah. Is it appropriate to call you Father or Padre? or Father Albert, Padre, whatever you like. Okay, awesome. Thanks for coming on, spend some time with us. Happy to be here. And you're in Florida? I am, Plantation, Florida, right? Uh, just west of Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, that's awesome. I used to live in Boca. Ah. Just for just for about six months. My dad, my dad and my sister 
Not far, not far. Yeah, not far at all. So I was reading uh, reading up on you, and you used to be a DJ, huh? I was. I was. That's Since awesome. the age of 12, I, I started my own DJ business. I used to cut lawns to, to buy records. When we used to buy records, remember? And, yeah. uh, and then, uh, I don't know. I just I always felt like music was a big part of my life. And uh, I wasn't a musician, but I loved to play music. So that's how I became a DJ. What kind of music were you into? Everything you can imagine. It was the 80s, you know, so. Beastie Boys? Disco and uh, lots of, you know, I would say like Madonna. I guess Madonna and Michael Jackson were like the big thing then. And, um, but, but you know, that was the more popular stuff. But there was a lot of stuff that, that you know, they played at clubs, like dance music, and, sure. um, which wasn't on the radio station every day, but it was certainly very popular in that time. And uh, I, I liked rock too, I have to say. I, I liked ACDC and stuff like that. So I, I think I liked a little bit of everything. That's awesome. I was going to think, uh, how old are you? You're probably about my age. I'm, I'm 51. Okay, you're 51. Yeah, Michael Jackson was my first um, like person I was like really into. Seventh grade, Thriller came out. No, That's not even right. sixth grade. Thriller came out, and I was like huge Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> but that's wild. So that doesn't really jive with the whole, um, you know, being a person of the cloth. Being, being a, a priest. Guy. No, no. People always laugh when they say I was a DJ before I went to seminary. They're like, really? No, but I think you know. In the, I think you've experienced this in your own life. In the midst of all that noise, whatever craziness you're doing, uh, God still has a chance to speak. So I can tell you that I, I really felt as I would watch everyone on the dance floor and as I was DJing and stuff, I always felt like there had to be something more, you know? Yeah. And I was never, thank God, into the drugs or the alcohol. I was always a kind of a very clean kid. I think they hired us a lot for a lot of DJ parties. Because they said, "Hey, these are the decent DJs. You know, <laughs> we didn't we didn't go to your house and rip you off or do anything bad." Um, but um, yeah, I think that I understood that there was more to life. And then it's funny because two worlds came together: the music and the craziness of the DJ world. And then I was very involved in my parish youth group, and so um, I guess youth retreats, all those experiences, spiritual stuff, really started becoming very important to me. And so. I think the noise, if you will, kind of started going down and I began to kind of hear more and more the voice of God saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. And uh, it surprised me. I think it surprised my parents when their 16-year-old DJ child said to them, hey, I think I'm going to be a priest. And they're like, what? Um, yeah, it was it was wild. My friends you know, were like in shock and kind of like said, oh, Albert. But, but you know, it's funny. While they were in shock, they used to play around with me and call me Father Albert because I was always kind of I think I was in some ways their conscience in many ways, you know, when we went out. And so it's interesting how, how God works. Yeah. So you were, you were pretty much a good kid, even when you were DJing, sounds like. I love doing that. I love the music. It was a, also, you know, we used to rap and we used to, you know, get out there. And yeah, it, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So you didn't mess with the alcohol or the drugs. What about the girls? Was that a temptation for you? Well, I had, I always had kind of like, the, you know, girlfriends and that but I, I you know it's funny I was always I always had a real sense of like fidelity and uh, I wasn't I wasn't a player you know I wasn't into two or three girls at a time like some of my buddies were um, so I think it, it's interesting you know I think God used all those experiences to lead me to where I am today and uh, I, I think I lived a very healthy and almost sheltered teenage life yeah because uh, my life was the church 
and yes, DJing and music. I was a Boy Scout, you know, I was involved in scouting, but I was very, very sheltered uh, because as the years passed, I started hearing things and things that I had never heard about as a teenager. For, for example, the whole drug world and all of its lingo, I knew nothing about that. Right. Um, you know, issues of sexuality and stuff that I had never, ever heard about. I mean, and all of a sudden you're in college and you start hearing these things and it's like, what world did I live in? I was a very, I think, a sheltered kid that grew up in a traditional Christian Catholic home with, you know, good morals, good values. And that's, that was my upbringing. And those, my friends were the same. way. If I could ask you, were you a, a virgin when you got into the ministry? Well, I don't talk about that. <laughs> That's fine. I, you, you know, uh, I, I, I really, I'll tell you this. I was not a promiscuous kid. I was yeah. not going around, you know, fertilizing the world. Like, no, no, got it, got it. I, 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 I guess so I, I, you know, I, I just, um, I think as a young man, you know, I had my sexual experiences that, you know, young men have, you know, 16, 17 and all that. But, um, uh, yeah, I was not, uh, I, I was not, uh, very sexually active, you know, yeah. and, I, and I, I mean, for me, I was, I remember I was in the process of two things. You have the adolescence going on, the hormones, and then you've got this call from God and you're thinking, I got to turn this off because in my tradition that I grew up in, not where I am now, but where I grew up, you know, uh, celibacy was the norm for clergy, right? for priests. So I had to kind of get used to the idea of no yeah. girls, no sex, no, yeah. Right. Well, that's that's why I asked because I'm like, I, I feel like maybe it'd be easier to agree to that if you had never experienced it. Once you, you know, once yeah. you once you taste it, it's hard to go back. So when you well, saw most of the people I went to seminary with, just so you know, uh, a lot of them were twice my age, so they had been around the block a few times. Right. And a lot, a lot. I mean, I was I was in a. It's actually changing again. Younger people are going into ministry now, but there was a time there in the 80s and 90s where almost no college age young people were entering it was all what they called second career older people mm -hmm. so i was really one of the youngest people uh, going into the seminary in my time and i was actually the youngest uh, roman catholic priest in the state of florida for a long time so you know people getting ordained and all were getting ordained much later after different kinds of life experiences did you did you feel like when because you're you know if anyone um you know doesn't know you're an Episcopalian church, or Episcopalian priest, that is, and you're allowed to marry. You're married. You have kids. But yes. when you originally began, you were from Catholic, and that obviously is, uh, is, is forbidden. So did you feel like you had that calling on your life? Because I know Paul talks about, you know, better to be single, basically, but it's a gift, yeah. right? It's a gift that God yeah. gives you, and you, you have it, and if you don't have it, you burn. You burn with passion. You burn with lust. Well, let me let me give you an example since you brought it up. Sure. Um, as a teenager growing up, what I was really very passionate about was Jesus Christ and spreading good news. You know, being an evangelist, being, you know, telling the world about Jesus. Yeah. Um, because you grew up Roman Catholic, you're pretty much convinced that if you're called to ministry, this is the only way to do it. Right. Now, you know, in the Episcopal Church, for example, we've got nuns and monks and religious that live, you know, the celibate life and live in the convent and do that kind of thing. But a great majority of our priests are married and they have their spouses and their families. So um, it's interesting because I had a lot of friends that were rabbis and ministers and pastors and different traditions. And I kind of grew up watching a variety of clergy of different traditions who had 
you know, their, their wives and their kids and their families. And it was just natural. It was just part of their life. Uh, but because I grew up in the tradition I grew up in, I was pretty convinced this was the only way to go. Sure. So for me, discovering, you know, later in life, already actually being a Roman Catholic priest, discovering that there was a way to, to, to have the Catholic tradition and the Catholic ethos and the Protestant thing in one church was very, very exciting for me. So that, that's how I discovered the Episcopal Church and, and the Anglican heritage. And that's how I got to know bishops and priests who were married and, uh, and would speak to me about their lives and, and, and what it was like. So for me, it was like a later discovery. <laughs> Maybe I was a late bloomer, I don't know, but uh, it was like a later discovery. That's, that's good. I actually uh, did a couple book tours in Romania and I stayed in monasteries a lot over there and, and they're all you know celibate but the priests sure. the priests the priests weren't and and I talked to them and you know they have kids but they also have restrictions and I'm assuming that there's there's even restrictions on your sex life with your wife like you, you only can't do it certain days of the week and certain times of the year and and, and what in, priests, the or, in the orthodox in the right, orthodox the priest yeah. even said he says I think this is actually harder on the wife because you know like it, it, it I guess maybe or maybe even harder on him because you you, you, you have to you know, you're in and out of it. So I, I don't know. But I guess, um, I, you know, I'd love to just explore because my thought, this is what I, I've read. First off, I find it, I find it hard to support it biblically, abstinence, mandatory abstinence, because, you know, the word, if you have the gift, great, but to be mandatory for people, like you said, that are called, I, I don't see, you know, Paul even talks about not, you know, um, denying your, your spouse and only for a period of time but otherwise the devil will come along and tempt you so I, I don't do you agree with that is it biblical I mean it, to me I mean, it, it, it there, remember there's a lot in the bible there's a lot there's a lot in Paul about sexuality um remember that the Christian tradition in the 2000 years of Christianity we've gone through a whole series of heresies and schisms and separations over all these issues we're still fighting about sexuality in the 21st century. Actually, a lot. I think a lot of our churches have, are really um, divided on a lot of issues of sexuality. You know, I'm a person that I'm very kind of Jesus-centered. So I look at Jesus, and Jesus didn't go in depth a lot into the whole sexuality thing. Uh, but I can tell you this. The tradition of the church and the way that scripture is understood is almost always broader than our own human parameters you know we kind of like put everything in a in a box and we sure. say okay this is like this this is like this is black this is white this is right this is wrong and yes there's a lot of that no doubt in our lives that we've got to observe you know there's a lot of things we need to obviously be cautious of morally and spiritually but at the same time i think when you talk about humanity, you talk about blood flowing through your veins. You know, last time I went to the doctor, they checked and they said, I'm still part of the human race. You know, <laughs> people sometimes see a collar or see an outfit and they think, oh, you know, those people, they're very, you know, almost like angelic. No, no, we're, guess what? We're flesh and bones, just like you, uh, body and soul. Here we are. We have the same struggles that everyone has. And I think, unfortunately, we only hear the bad news, uh, you know, when it comes to clergy in the media. You hear the stuff about the pastor for the mega church that was unfaithful to the wife and you know people are distraught 
or the one that got involved in child pornography or the one that got involved with the pedophilia or the one that got involved with it. And then and you hear all these horror stories. And of course, I think to a lot of people, you know, religious people, if you will, or people of the cloth or people of the church are repressed. And so these things happen. That's really not the case. Um, some of the most passionate people I've met are nuns and monks and celibate people that they gave up the sexual thing, but they really understand why and spiritually they understood it. I did for many years. I was I was a hardcore celibate, you know, uh, for a long time. And I was, I can tell you in the seminary, I was uh, completely celibate, uh, eight years, by the way, of philosophy and theology. Uh, never had any kind of sexual encounter with anyone and, uh, and didn't look for it. I mean, I, I was content, you know, filling the physical void with spirituality, prayer and all that. But of course, when you're 18, as a man, it's not the same as being 40. Right. Harder. And I've got to be honest with you, when I, when I, and that's why I think maybe it was a late bloomer, but when I met my wife in my 30s and I fell in love, you know, something happened that was a real dilemma. You know, that's why my memoir, if you read it, you'll see it's called Dilemma, uh, because there's no other word I can come up with it. I mean, it was like, I fell in love with this beautiful woman. I was very, very attracted to, and I tried to look the other way and she looked the other way. And it was one of those <laughs> things for a long time. Um, but again, I've always come from the school where there's gotta be a better way or another way. Sure. And almost immediately at that moment, I remember talking to my confessor, you know, confession's a big thing in the Roman Catholic church. And I had a wonderful confessor. Um, he was a medical doctor who had become a priest. And, um, and I said to him, this, this, and this, and the first thing out of his mouth was, but Albert, you know, you're, the church is going to want to want you to be a bishop. You can't do this. <laughs> first thing, it wasn't about, you know, Albert, how do you feel? Are you in love? It was all about what the church needs and the image of the church. It was never about a human. Yeah. How does that feel to be in love with this woman? You know, and, and, you know, do you, do you, what, how, what do you deal with? How do you deal with those feelings sexually? And nothing like that. It was always kind of like just about the institution. Yeah. And I realized more and more talking to other friends that have gone through similar processes as I, I've been through, that it happens to all of us. It's pretty much the same way. It's always about defending the image of the church and the institution. It's not about the person you have in front of you and what they're experiencing. And so then I was able to find uh, pastors and ministers and friends and rabbis even that are dear friends of mine. And I say even just because they're out of the Christian you know, tradition, but they're still my, my sisters and brothers in, in faith, I believe. Uh, we believe in one God, the same God, but and we come from the Jews. So I, I always like, um, I've always spoken to wise people outside of my own circle and listened to them. And to this day, I have many friends whose biblical interpretation of the church and everything is radically different than mine, but they're still my dear friends and I love them and I care for them. Yeah. So um, I don't need people to agree with me, you know, to be friends with them. But I, I do think at the end of the day, for me, uh, moving on and embracing the Episcopal Church and embracing that way of being Catholic and that way of being Reformed and Protestant um, really, really helped me to be a very healthy person because I was always very Bible-based and, uh, and and the Episcopal Church emphasizes the scripture, you know, yeah. the Old and New Testament as those things necessary for salvation. Um, you know, the sacramental life is maintained there. The traditions of the liturgy are maintained there. And so for me, it was really like, you know, a geographical move more than a cultural one. Yeah. And and it really allowed me to understand uh, the gifts of where I came from 
and then the gifts to where I was headed. I so from what I read, it was up until the 12th century, the church actually allowed people to marry and have kids. Now yeah. I don't know if this part's true, but this is what I read was that uh, it was it was more about money than anything because what would happen is the priests would die and they would leave their land and their estates to their children and their wives. And at some point, the church kind of said, "No, we we want that. We want their estates." So they forbid them from marrying. So it was really was the decision was made based off the money, which is just really crappy if you ask me. That's the truth. I, I tell my friends it was all about real estate. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. And then well, the patrimony of the church, you know, was very important at that time. And remember, you had the papal states, you had the papal territories, and not only that, you're talking about a church where some celibates because the first 39 popes were married men that's somebody nobody ever talks about that the right. first 39 popes were married wow um and then of course came a whole wave in the dark ages of popes that were promiscuous and had other kinds of issues but in the 12th century yes you're right celibacy becomes mandatory somewhat mandatory universally it isn't until the council of trent in the middle of the protestant reformation that celibacy really becomes kind of imposed uh but but for the first 1200 years most parish priests were married with children and families and um the people that were not married from the get-go from the earliest days were some bishops uh, monks nuns people like that who who had already decided on some kind of special devotion within the church but right. most clergy most most People who served, you know, the, the, the common folks were married and lived among the common folk. And so this mentality that the priest lives in a rectory and it's a house that's separated from the rest of the people, that's very, very, very new, actually, in the church. It's not something that ancient. And um, those are all things that you, you say that today to someone who's traditional or conservative in the way of thinking when it comes to the church, and they'll say, oh, that can't be true. Well, no, historically, that is the truth. I mean, and celibacy to this day, by the way, is not completely mandatory in the church. Let me explain to you why. If an Episcopalian like me or one of my colleagues chose to become a Roman Catholic, they could go with their wife and be Roman Catholic priests, and the Pope would allow them and the bishop would allow them to be with their wife. It's those who are born, like I was, in Roman Catholicism that are not allowed to have the wife and the uh, children. Yeah, like, I guess they, they, they couldn't tell you the divorce, I guess. So... You know, the, the Catholic Church has had a struggle with, you know, pedophilia. That's pretty sure. well known. Do you think that this mandatory celibacy lends to that problem? I'll tell you the truth. I think celibacy has very little to do with it. What does have to do with it is the level of sexual repression that sometimes exists in the clergy. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a significant number of homosexuality in Roman Catholic clergy. Um, I don't want to say the number uh, because it's higher than anybody would believe, but there is a huge, huge high number of homosexual men who embrace uh, priesthood and, by the way, embrace celibacy. So, you know, many of them are chaste and are not in any way having sexual contact with anyone. So I, I want that to be clear. They have same attraction, but they're not acting on it. Exactly. But the issue is what we found during the pedophilia scandals, and I had to replace two men who were accused of that in two different parishes. So it's kind of like a, a firefighter, if you will, in, in those two cases at two large parishes. 
But I can tell you this, um, the men who are involved with these pedophilia numbers, if you look at the numbers, 90% or more were sexually engaged with teenage men. We're talking about 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 year old men right before the adult years. Right. And technically, CNN and the other news outfits won't tell you this, but technically it's epidophilia because pedophilia is a, an adult person that has a, an authentic, real sexual attraction toward children who are prepubescent. Gotcha. What was happening in the Roman Catholic Church really was young teenage boys who had the genitals of a man. You know, at 14 and 15, you and I look the way we look now, you know, in our privates, you know, and everything else. So you develop and you grow, and this is who you are. These young people, their lives were completely destroyed by irresponsible people who obviously have a problem. And to this day, we think it's a sickness that, by the way, um, has no cure, which is horrible. Uh, I believe God can heal anything, don't get me wrong. But uh, psychologically, they say these things can be reformed or changed. So imagine messing with a child that is just in the process of getting to know his sexual identity, just in the process of getting to know his world, you know, beginning to think about girls and what that's going to be like, beginning to think about, because why? You, you have the hormones, you have, you know, puberty. And at that stage, someone from your church who you trust messes with you. That's that's scary. It was just for me. It was very painful to be there through all of that. And I don't doubt that somewhere in the back of my subconscious, part of my reason for moving on was just it was very, very painful for me to 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 know so many and to see so many involved in that situation and to be impacted by that. And um, I just chose to live a much healthier, happier life and to yeah. move on. Yeah, if I was ever gonna do it, I would definitely go your your route. <laughs> I've uh, you know, I've I've been on, I've had long periods of abstinence, um, not because I necessarily signed up. I've signed up to be a Christian, and I felt like God would give me a wife a lot faster than. <laughs> so I involuntarily kind of was celibate for a long period, six years, four years, sure. six years. Um, and it's been honestly the greatest blessing in my life. I've been able to accomplish. A lot of amazing things by harnessing that sexual energy but right. you know I, I watched i watched a good movie called spotlight two years ago i don't know if you saw it but of one course. of the things they talked about that made a lot of sense in there was the mandatory celibacy creates this culture of secrecy within yeah. the clergy and the, i think the, the number that they mentioned in that movie was 50 percent of the priests are sexually active most of them with adults but you know, because, you know, and I look back at the word, the Bible says, confess your sin one to another, pray for each other that you might be healed. So forgiveness comes through God. Healing comes through confessing our sins to each other. And if you're a priest and you have sexual sin and you can't talk to anybody about it, how do you get over it? Because you can't, right? That It's a spiritual principle that you have to confess it well, in order to, to beat it, as what I believe. You know, the word, the, the program says you're only as sick as your secrets. And, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I same thing. Yes, yes, so yes. Well, you, you talk to your confessor. Yeah. You okay. talk to the priest that you trust. And uh, either at that time or later, you find out that that priest was in the same situation you were in. That what's that? So, uh, 
either at that time or later on you find out that priest that you used to talk to was in a similar situation that you were in. Sure. So yeah. uh, what ends up happening is, see the problem right here, and I'm glad you're talking about it. I haven't had this conversation in a long time because I, I, I usually shy away from interviews that have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church just because I've spoken my piece, I've written the book, and I just say, you know, give it to God. But this is, this is what I think at this stage is sexuality in general has to be dealt with in a much healthier way. Not just, by the way, in the Roman Catholic Church, but in all of our churches and in all of our institutions, especially as Christians. You know, we believe in the word made flesh. We believe that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we believe that we were saved because the word became flesh. In other words, for us, the incarnation is a good thing. Everything that is incarnate is good, including sex. It's good. God made it good. We pervert it when we take it out of its loving context. We pervert it. Yesterday, I was being interviewed by some shock jocks in the morning for my new TV show in the Spanish world. And um, <laughs> one, you know, they say to me, oh, Father, is it true the church says sex is just for procreation? And I said, man, that's 120 years old. The church hasn't been saying that for over 100 years. The church has said that, yes, you know, that sexual intercourse is, is at the service of, of the union of the couple, their, their mutual pleasure. And also, obviously, in God's creative act for procreation. That, that's a big part of it, obviously. But, I mean, for people to still think in the 21st century that any church is saying, oh, sex is just to have kids. I say, man, what world do you guys live in? Because, I mean, that, that I know of the last time we heard about that in the church was maybe the 1940s. Wow. Maybe. And that's, that's almost a century ago. So I say to people, uh, you know, sex is about integrity. It's about being faithful to the person you love it's about sharing in something that's very sacred and very intimate and that's why it's so sad when we see these tv shows with these half naked girls and these you know and the, everything is uh, they talk about sex like it's some kind of uh like sport and and these shows you know where everything you know thank god i don't watch that anymore you know i, I we, we my wife and i we sit and we stream what we, and we choose what we want to watch on tv to keep our minds and hearts healthy but I, I find that our kids, our young people are being bombarded all the time by sexual messages that are basically a lie. Yeah. Because they're telling kids, oh, you know, uh, you know, sex is casual, sex is not that, you know, it's not that serious, do whatever you want, experiment with whatever you want, you know, mix it up with the drugs a bit, you know, do this and that. And I mean, the messages are horrible. Um, and we've got to recover at some point a sense of humanity, if you will, you know, how do we teach our kids and how do we how do we pass on to this world that we live in that our sexuality is a gift given by God and it's sacred and that we have to honor it. And uh, it takes time for most of us to get there. Believe me, it took, it took me time to, to understand, no, I've got to be married. I'm not going to live a double life. I'm not going to, you know, dishonor, you know, my spouse and dishonor the church and dishonor. I'm going to do this right. And and I was in the process, by the way, of, uh, of getting all my ducks, <laughs> lining up all my ducks, like they say, when paparazzi took a picture of the famous priest on the beach, and then, you know, it all came out. But I almost thank God for that, because I say, well, you know, as I was busy lining up my ducks, God was saying, no, buddy, you're going to do it at my time, not your time. And, and I got to tell you, it was great. 
I mean, uh, my, the day I got married, I was, you know, the happiest guy in the world. And uh, what people don't understand, and, and they'll say all the time, oh, because he broke his vows. The first vows I ever took in my life were the vows I took on my, on my wedding day. Secular priests don't take vows. Diocesan priests, most parish priests don't take vows. We make promises, believe me, and they're just like vows, but they're not really technically vows because they're dispensable. You know, the Pope can give you permission to get married. Uh, and and, and, uh, and uh, you can undo those things, you know, if you will. But you can't undo marriage vows. Right. You know, it's in sickness and in health till death do us part. And um, I, I made the promise of celibacy when I was 24, by the way. You know, silly thing, but I did. Uh, I made a promise of uh, obedience to the bishop when I was uh, 24 at my ordination as a deacon and then later as a priest. But I say that to you because vows, wow, the day I got married, I made vows, you know, and I, I made vows to my wife. And then I knew that, you know, the church vows and the marriage vows kind of go together because then as an Episcopal priest, you make vows to the Episcopal church as part of your reception, you know, or ordination as a priest. And, uh, and, and you understand that, uh, that those are very serious too. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes we make a lot of vows and we make a lot of promises. So we, we, we have very, very good intentions to live a certain way, but sometimes God has other plans. At least with me, I can tell you God had other plans. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, 100% believe that. Have people been pretty supportive of you since all that kind of went down? Yes, I mean, I gotta tell you, for the most part, uh, people inside and outside the Roman Catholic Church have been extremely supportive, loving, understanding. Thousands of priests write me, I got to tell you, on a yearly basis, uh, almost every day. It's a phone call, it's an email. You know, Albert, I'm in the same situation you're in. What do I do? You know, like, what's it like? <laughs> yeah. What's it like to have a wife and have sex? Yeah, not, o- not only what's it like, a lot of them are really stuck. Yeah. Because they're already in love. They're already in a relationship. Many of them, most of them are in a relationship that's, you know, yeah. been going on for a while. Some have children. Wow. Don't have children outside of, of wedlock and, and, you know, outside of that. Um, yeah, I would love to just really quickly tell me that. Because, I mean, I, you were in that same boat in the dilemma, like you said. So how did you, did you just feel God was telling you, hey, listen, marry this woman, jump ship, and, or, you know, how did you make that choice? I, it was hard for me because I was this ultra public priest. Yeah. So I think people expected, you know, oh, Father Oprah or whatever, they, you know, they've given me a lot of nicknames throughout the years. But I, I was like the guy that always defended the church at every move, you know, even sometimes with stuff that was indefendable, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I was out there because I was kind of like, um, in some ways, an, an unofficial spokesperson, if you will, for a lot of what was happening. And there was a lot of strife, as you know, in the church in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I, I lived through all of that and I made it and I survived. But I got I to gotta be honest with you. Um, God did tell me it's time to move on. And he told me in a variety of ways. He sent wonderful people to my life. You know, my Episcopal Bishop um, once came to one of my programs um, and he heard me speak about celibacy and how I thought it should be optional and, and how we should be thinking about married priests and stuff. And he came to me afterwards and whispered in my ear, said, Albert, when you're ready, come talk to me. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that conversation and that friendship that we developed and then I developed a friendship with another Episcopal priest, and I would go to his house for lunch, and right at, right above their living living room on their TV set, right next to the dining room, they had a big picture. And there's a priest, the wife, and the four kids, 
And I would look at that picture and think, Albert, what are you doing in this celibate life thing? That, you know, that's what God wants you to do. And, and so those, those two bishops and a, and a variety of priests, I got to be honest with you, um, really, really kind of opened their hearts to me and listened to me because I was, I was really struggling. Yeah. And struggling in a sense that I, I'm a very transparent person. And it's hard for me to hide things. I don't, I'm pretty like open. And so for me to live in that, like you said, culture of secrecy, that's really what it is. And to live kind of in this hidden thing and where everybody, you know, has something going on, but nobody wants to talk about it. It was just, that was very hard. So last question. You think Jesus is coming back soon? Wow. My prayer all the time is come Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> I'll tell you. I love what Jesus um, says to his friends when they ask him about that. And he says, you know, nobody knows the day nor the hour, not even the son of man, only the father. And I have a hard time thinking that Jesus was being completely honest. I got to tell you this. <laughs> I, I, I love the Lord with all my heart, but I'm going to tell you, I think he just wanted them off his back. <laughs> I think he knew everything. Uh, I, he wanted them off his back. Yeah. They were obnoxious. Uh, live with that expectancy, I'm sure, too. Yes. Well, we say it in the creed every Sunday. He shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And and the Lord will come. Um, but I don't know. I don't know when it will be. Um, and I got to be honest with you. I'm in no hurry. In the sense that it's going to be in God's time. I've, I've learned enough in my time. It's going to be in God's you don't know how many people have told me, would you have stayed? They've asked me this question. Would you have stayed in the Roman Catholic Church if they would have allowed priests to marry? And my question, my answer has always been, you know, I'm not sure about that because if I had had the option, I would have already been a married man and children. Maybe I would have settled there. Sure. But the truth is, I wasn't going to wait another hundred years <laughs> to, to find out what it would be like. So I, I was, I believe God opened all the doors and all the windows to put me in the place I needed to be. And it's a healthy, happy place. Um, I, ha I have the same love for the Lord Jesus I've always had. I have the same dedication to the Lord and to the ministry and to my parish that I've always had. But now I do it with my wife and my children. And I feel like there was a part of my humanity that I was not able to express. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Man. I have that longing now. I can't wait to be married. You're so, going to find her soon. I promise you. Hey, pray for me, please. I'm praying for you. She's out there. I agree. I claim She's that. waiting for you. <laughs> All right. I appreciate you coming on, Father. Take her flowers, by the way. They love flowers. <laughs> I, I don't even have a girlfriend. So if you're out there, I'm single. You can hit me up. No, but I'm saying, <laughs> when you go on that first date, take her flowers. Flowers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Father. God bless you, brother. Thank you.